I like that guy, though. Aaron Taylor Johnson? No. Doug Lyman, which is also the flavor that they put in Sprite. I think, I think it's pronounced Limon. <laughs> She's Wow Limon. She's Doug Limon. <laughs> <laughs> This is Four Friends Fight About Film, a podcast about movies and things more important than movies, if we ever find any. Today, we'll be talking about movies that are underrated. That is, movies that we love, but just didn't get the love and attention or Oscars and box office we thought it deserved. To kick us off, say your name and your favorite movie from when you were underrate. Underrate. Under, under, eight. The, under age the age of eight. Of eight. This is Lance. <laughs> I, I don't really want to be here tonight, but I'm, I'm doing this Eeyore. anyway. But yeah, it'd be, yeah it'd be weird if a, we were all here at your house and you weren't. I know it's it's been a rough couple days. So the dirt bike kid. That movie is awful. Do not remember it whatsoever. <laughs> yeah, it's about a dirt bike kid. Like dirt bike is in a motorcycle. Yeah, he has it's a, a magic dirt bike. Dirt bike. Mm. Kid it with like a dirt bike and stuff. Yeah, it flies uh, around. It, it starts young like, Peter Billingsley from Christmas Story. This was yeah. gonna be it. This is what was gonna take him to the next level of unemployment. <laughs> <laughs> Jordan. My name is Jordan, and mine is Africa Screams, starring Abbott and Costello from 1949. What year were you born? What? I thought it was movies that we loved before the age of eight. <laughs> no, it was. I was confused why you were watching that <laughs> yeah. before the age of eight. Because we watched things like that. Were you one of those kids that like grew up with their grandmother? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, my grandmother was around. One yes. of those gross kids? <laughs> it's a really funny movie. You should see it. I bet. All right, we'll do. I feel like I won't. My name is Hudson. I'm going to go with uh, Mary Poppins. Loved Mary Poppins. Mm. Remember uh, the Disney VHS used to come in like giant cases? They're like bigger than a normal case. Yeah, Yeah. a bunch of them, yeah. Yeah. Like you could probably throw them off a roof and they would survive (laughs) the fall. I think they were all cracked. It seems like they were all cracked. Maybe. Great movie though. Gibby. This is Kyle Gibby Gibson. And uh, I was eight, 1985. And I would say my favorite movie, although I didn't own it at the time, would be Goonies in 1984. Hardly appropriate for a kid of that age. True. I know that's probably why I ended up. Why I ended up? How did you end up? <laughs> you ended up. With you. I ended up. Are you that's, done? that's why I ended up. Yeah, I'm done now, guys. We asked you guys on Facebook what your favorite underrated movies were, and uh, we got a few responses. I'll take uh, Jacob York here. Scott Pilgrim versus the World. I don't know that I've ever had a better time in the theater. <laughs> That's pretty good. That's a good Jacob. Thanks. Thanks, Jacob. I completely agree with Jacob York. Scott Pilgrim is one of my favorite movies and definitely want to fit it in here somewhere on the as show you, at some point. As you can imagine, I've never seen it. It's good. Huh. So well, we're we're going right. to get you to watch it. Mm, we'll see. Like you haven't seen it out of principle or you just haven't I, I around haven't been interested in it. It's a pretty good movie. Yeah? Yeah. All, All right. right. This next one is a suggestion that Laura Lee made. So Gibby, do you want to do a little stage play here? Sure. So Lance, why don't you play Laura Lee and um, Gibby, you play Jordan. Okay. <laughs> These, this is played out in the comments on our uh, Facebook. Do, do we have Facebook to do page. this? Nah, just try it. See how it goes. Thunder God. 1928? No. It's the 2016 documentary about a low-key superhero who lives in Alpharetta fighting against the 
monotony of life with its droll self-mockery and razor-sharp wit. So uh, what Lorley is referencing here is something that Jordan still doesn't get to this day. <laughs> Did Lance refer to himself as Thunder God? No, it yes. was in the documentary episode. If you made a documentary about your life, oh, it was what would it be called? God. It was you called Thunder to any God. of our episodes, Jordan, you remember. <laughs> Jordan, you want to take this last one here? This, uh, this one's going to take a while. Yeah, I'd so. love to. Yeah. All right. Settle in, guys. Everybody, everybody sit down. This one is from Nate Vasher, and he said, Rad! <laughs> yeah, of course he's talking about the movie Rad. Yeah. Uh, which was, I man, I love that movie. It's, it's one of rad. the better slash only bike dance scenes. I think, yeah, this, it's the best. I don't think better. Very, I think best. yeah. If you want your favorites out on the show, you can leave your comments at facebook.com slash fightaboutfilm. All right, guys, so underrated films, that's pretty open to interpretation. How did you decide on your list tonight? So my thought in each of these was pretty simple. It's like, why are not people, why are people not talking? Why are not people? Why people no talk about <laughs> movies? <laughs> I know people like my movie. (laughs) It was simply, you know, why isn't this movie talked about more often? This is one of the best movies of all time. So I just uh, feel that mine are just kind of forgotten to time or just they're all kind of smaller releases too. Yeah, I mean, movies take different places in the public consciousness and dialogue, I guess. And to me, it was movies that are sorely underrepresented in that dialogue. So for me, all my films were films that I thought were amazing that should be talked about more that are really talked about very little. Yeah, I tried to choose ones that were no Oscars, poor box office or middling box office, uh, bad reviews, most uh, most of these, I think, that I just had a really personal connection with. These are three movies that I always recommend to people when, um, you know, just being out and about. I had a really hard time with this because I don't pay any attention to Oscars or yeah. I guess general conversations you about did, what you movies didn't are know which movies were properly rated. I have no idea which movies are properly rated. Well, because you didn't really know how they were rated because you don't care. Exactly. That, yeah. Right. Exactly. So these are three movies that I love that I don't hear people talk about. That's, uh, that's a good way to do that. <laughs> like when I'm walking down the street, usually no one's people talking bring them about up. It. Yeah. Uh-uh. Yeah. Yeah. I will say, Lance, all three of your movies are movies you had recommended to me before we well, even started this podcast. Yeah. Well, two I, of which I, I, I'm kind of passionate about like finding diamonds in the rough and then introducing them to other people. That's actually one reason I want to do a podcast. So I'm very attuned to things like this. So this was a category that was kind of in my wheelhouse. I'll say too, as I look at the, the movies that we put together, I think this is a fantastic collection films if thank you <laughs> no i mean i, I really i really do i feel like this is one of the more impressive lists that we've put together from top to bottom i don't i didn't really see a terrible movie on here a lot of people have told me you know one thing they've enjoyed about the podcast so far is that it introduces them to new movies and i think this is a really good list to work off of if that's why you listen to the show good place you're gonna, to start you're gonna get a lot, lot of good recommendations tonight well i i really like this topic it was easy for me to come up with three underrated films and you know what you know what i don't recommend falling in love with a f-ing sports team that loses the f- <laughs> Super Bowl that it had won 28 to 3 with a quarter and a half left. That's what I don't recommend. Well, to be fair, it Still, didn't have it won. It did have it won. It was over. The game was over and we f-ing blew it. Lance, that and was I am 30 livid. days ago. I don't want to be here. Ago. I don't care. I feel the exact same now as I did then. I'm still upset, and I will never get over it. It's some weird time paradigm right now. Okay. All right. Okay. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, it's not it's you okay, guys' buddy. fault. It's not you guys' fault. Thank you. Okay. All right. It's kind of Jordan's fault. I didn't even watch I'm good. the game. Bro. I'm good. I'm good. I'm sorry. Okay. Let's do the show now. Whew. Back to movies. Yep. My first film tonight is La True, 1960. Which is French for The True. The True. That was my first joke. I had my notes. <laughs> 
Sometimes it means the truth. Do you know what the true means? The whole. I do. The, the whole. whole. It does mean the whole, which that yeah. opens up its own jokes. I learned but. that from my French class or IMDb <laughs> right here in front of me. Uh, it's a 1960 film by Jacques Becker. This film tells the story of four inmates in a French prison whose elaborate escape plan runs into issues when a new inmate joins them in their cell, leading to mistrust and uncertainty. The Criterion Collection, if you're not familiar with it, is a distribution company that's known for taking important classic and contemporary films and selling them to film aficionados. Selling them to Lance. <laughs> basically, <laughs> me, yeah. me and 10 other guys with no life. Me too. Um, I have they, a few. Basically, what they do is they take snobby movies, put them on amazing <laughs> Blu-ray edition, and sell them for a lot of money so film dorks like me will buy them, which yeah. we totally do. Not pretentious at all. Yeah. Well, uh, they do include amazing special features. They do. And they usually Gorgeous restore packaging. it. Gorgeous yeah. packaging. Right. Come on. And so, Armageddon's one of them. If you go to NYU Film School and mention Criterion Collection, everyone knows what you're talking about. So I had a mission a couple of years ago to watch every movie in the Criterion Collection. At last count, I think they're up to about 870 movies, and I've seen over 700 of them now. Hey, you know what else is in that list? What? Black Stallion. <laughs> you skipped right over that <laughs> one. Of, that. <laughs> of the 170 I haven't seen, that's one of them. <laughs> Um, in the course of this sad, sad journey, I came across this film. I had never heard of it, and I, when I looked at it on IMDb, it had an 8.5 rating, which is insane. Mm-hmm. If you don't know a lot about IMDb, good movies are in the kind of mid-sevens. When you get to 8, you're getting to the great film area. When you get to 8.5, that's like out of the stratosphere. That's, that's a, so that's... much true. <laughs> <laughs> you just said that so the whole. <laughs> Anyway, I hit play. This movie just stunned me. Uh, I talked in our best of 2016 episode about Arrival and how what I loved about it is that it's a procedural that shows us how a group of experts solves a problem. And that's really what this film does. We watch a group of prisoners playing this escape and it is absolutely captivating watching how they do it. There are stretches of this film that are just, uh, this will sound ridiculous. It's literally just someone filing through a steel bar or digging a hole. And I can't explain why, but it's absolutely riveting. You feel them working and making progress and you start to crave their freedom for them. It reminded me, have you guys ever seen those YouTube videos where it's things to like soothe your OCD mm-hmm. and it's just somebody doing woodwork mm-hmm. or like blowing a bubble or mm-hmm. th- that's a lot of what this like certain stretch of this of this film feel like. So it's like that and you wouldn't think digging a hole or tunneling through a wall could do that but it absolutely does. It's a little less relaxing than that because there's some serious tension and, and suspense in this. There, there is but I guess what I'm getting at is that hypnotic nature yeah, yeah, of it. Yeah. You just watch and you're just like, like you're there with them. You want to see them punch through that wall. Right. It's just weird. It had this strange effect to me I haven't seen in movies very much. Yeah. But you know, you're right. Up against all of this is the relationship between this new inmate and the other four men. And you're wondering, is he going to double cross them? Is he going to join them? And we, we don't really know. One of the hardest things to do is end a movie well. And this is one of the best endings I've ever seen in a movie because it becomes about so much more than the escape and that longing for freedom. I'd recommend this film highly, admitting it's pretty hard to find because it's actually out of print with Criterion now. You can rent it. Um, I do have a copy, although I probably can't have all of our listeners over at the same time to watch it. Um, but if you can get your hands on a copy, do because it is it's amazing. I rented it on the Amazon. Oh, you can get it on Amazon? Uh, you can. Oh, nice. And while the credits were rolling, here's what I wrote in my movie journal. <laughs> that ending sucks. <laughs> I mean, incredible, brutal ending, but not at all yeah. what you want to happen. Jeepers. <laughs> Not what you want. Jeepers. <laughs> Only a European movie would do that. I think I'm going to carry this feeling with me for a while. Crushed. F***ing crushed. How did, yeah, how did you go from f- 
talk to Jeepers. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I was going to let Lance say the F word. Yeah, you've got a wide range of curse words. Yeah. yeah. I believe you texted that same thing after the Falcons game. So that's very. <laughs> right. We're going to have to relive it, relive it in every it really, segment. But tonight. really, kind of funny because I felt like I kind of knew how you felt about yeah. the Super Bowl after huh. I watched this. Let, movie. let me make something clear, Jordan. You will never understand how I No, I won't. Don't you ever you say at, that. You're Don't you I ever got, say that. I got a, a, the tiniest sliver of that feeling. There you go. Uh, you're the little known fact they made a sequel to this, Le oh. True Du. <laughs> Even more whole. (laughs) There is a movie that I couldn't help but think of the whole time I was watching this movie. And let it be known, I loved this movie. It's phenomenal. It really is 8.5. But it reminded me a lot of one of my favorite American movies, The Great Escape. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's got a lot in common with it. Different, but similar. But I loved it. One thing that really kind of confused me, but not in a bad way, was how nice and friendly the prison staff are to the the, inmates. I I was sitting there thinking, is that a French thing? (laughs) I I don't know. (laughs) I don't know either. It was really interesting. Interesting. So Latrue, the movie that Jordan calls. F- <laughs> <laughs> All right. Jordan. At the turn of this century, Brad Pitt had a chance to make. I'm in a Brad Pitt history <laughs> class. <laughs> yes. He had a choice between two movies The Bourne Identity or Spy Game. He chose the latter. The Bourne Identity, of course, was a huge hit and went on to spawn four sequels so far. Spy Game, you may not have even heard of, but I believe Brad Pitt made the right choice. More like Spy He would have been a pretty bad Jason Bourne. <laughs> he would have been a terrible Jason Bourne. Yeah, he would have been fine. No. <laughs> no. No. He would have. You don't Brad like is, those movies. Jason Bourne would I don't have eaten li- a lot. I don't like them. That's the point. It's <laughs> he would just have eaten like a lot more anybody food. could have done that. It would have been fine. Anyway, Spy Game, directed by Tony Scott, who also directed Top Gun and True Romance and Days of Thunder, is a CIA thriller about a recruiter played by cooler than cool Robert Redford and his recruit, Brad Pitt. Weaving Redford's last day at the CIA in 1991, as he is faced with attempting to save Pitt from his Chinese executors. Racist. Oh, no. They, that's what the... Yeah, Jordan. All executioners are Chinese. <laughs> no, just his. Typical. Anyway, weaving that with the duo's missions in Vietnam and Berlin and Beirut since the mid-70s. We see not just the usual thrills and suspense and intrigue of espionage tropes, but Spy Game delves a bit deeper into the sacrifice, the price, and the code by which agents must live and play. While Pitt, playing the talented young agent, is plenty exciting and entertaining, the true pleasure in Spy Game comes in watching Redford put his field agent experience to use in the Langley Conference Room against the new school top brass. Like watching an old pro still dominating his arena with skill and finesse, this is what makes this movie so incredibly fun. It's a bit of a new take on the old guy on his way out puts one last notch in his belt. But this isn't about Redford proving that he's still got it. It's about friendship and loyalty, about breaking your own rules, and humble sacrifice for the life of another man when it would be far easier just to pack up and go home. Now, perhaps it was just poor timing. I don't know, but Spy Game was released just two months after September 11th, and I imagine that America's appetite for CIA thrillers was still suppressed. I can't claim that I have my finger on the pulse of the movie going public, but I still hold that Brad Pitt made the right decision. Spy Game is superbly crafted by Tony Scott, and let's all admit, like Gibby did, that Brad Pitt would have made a terrible Jason Bourne. I had never seen this movie before three days ago. Oh, wow. So I did research for the podcast. Wow. And I watched the the movie. Look at that, guys. The whole movie? Yeah, I'd never seen any of the movie. (laughs) I'd owned it since about 2004. But I hadn't watched it. So this I, is so where I, if we can't figure out where to watch a movie, Gibby just has it. Yeah. Still in its package. Yeah, yeah. True. Yeah. If anybody for, needs a copy, for 13 I have it. He probably owns the entire Criterion collection. He's just never seen it. I think the only reason you yeah. decided to watch it, though, is that there's a character in it named Gibby, right? There is. Yeah, I texted you guys. There's a guy you named Gibby. Me? Huh. No. I, it, I was surprised by how much Robert Redford was in it. Because I remember from the trailers thinking it was, you know, probably a 
Brad Pitt vehicle, but no, it's definitely a Robert Redford movie. When did Robert Redford get so leathery? That's a good question because he wasn't that old. In it's this like movie. he could make a I handbag think, out I of think him or something. At Sundance, that could that's be what it. did it. Uh-huh. Yeah. I didn't think there was a lot of tension in the movie uh, as to whether or not Brad Pitt would be released because oh no, you, you you know what's what's going to happen. It's about the journey. I want to mention this one scene in the movie that takes place on this rooftop mm. in Berlin or Russia. I don't know some foreign country. Berlin, but they shot it in Morocco. Okay. And so they did it with a helicopter. Mm-hmm. And Redford was like, why are you doing it with a helicopter? But it ended up looking pretty cool. But there's a scene and I was so distracted in it because Brad Pitt's like overacting and throwing chairs off the top of the roof, which made me wonder, where's that chair go? But then, <laughs> yeah, I wondered the same thing. <laughs> Somebody died. Because B, he's like, he's like stalking this chair on the other side of the table, Robert Redford was doing. And my whole thought was, is he going to sit in it forwards or backwards, frontwards or backwards? Mm. And it's backwards. Slater style? Yeah. AC Slater style. Does he put oh. a hat on backwards too? I think he did have. A hat hey, what's up with this no, spy he game? He doesn't wear any. He doesn't wear any hats backwards. Okay, movie. it was a all four San Diego. Hat. Did Tony Scott die? He did. Yeah, he jumped he, off uh, a bridge. Committed. That's what I wish wow. I was doing right now. <laughs> Jeez, I'm sorry. Uh, I feel like I saw this movie back in 2001, I guess, in the theater, and I remember loving it. I, I barely remember anything about it. But Tony Scott had a really great run of films that I feel nobody really talks he about. He really did. Yeah. So like Crimson Tide, Enemy of the State, Spy Game, Domino, Deja Vu. Like I thought all of those were great. That's yeah, not counting also, the, his famous ones, which came before that, like Drew Romance or you know Top Gun, Days of Thunder, depending on what you think about What do you movies. think that was? Do you think there's something about the visuals in his movie that I can understand why they may not have worked for everyone? Well, it was he's kind of like Michael Bayish. With yeah, his visual. It's kind of it's a little it can be a little headache. It's a, it's a I lot think. of super fast cuts, yeah. which is which is interesting there because of its relation to the Bourne identity, which right. is super fast cut. Like the, it's a very similar sort of style with those two movies. Identity wasn't as much as the sequels though. No, but it's still pretty yeah. it's pretty fast. It's still that kind of movie. This to me doesn't feel like your typical Tony Scott movie though. I mean there are no, a lot of fast cuts, but it's not as the I believe the average hectic. shot length in this movie is two point seven seconds. See, I was surprised I read that. <laughs> really? I was surprised that it was That's that funny. short because it's seemed like that's I heard it was one tenth of a second was the average shot. <laughs> like you can't even see <laughs> like one, it, one it, frame. Yeah, the human eye one can't. 20, 24th. Yeah. It was experimental. Man, did it work? My first, my third, the one that I am talking about now, <laughs> Mijo Black, directed by Martin Boob. No, wait, I'm sorry, <laughs> it's uh, Martin Breast. Oh man. <laughs> <laughs> Poor guy. He, you know, he he had to grow up with that, and then you have to come along. Bring it back. Are you? You were just trying really hard to get the AKA right there. It's not going to work. <laughs> <laughs> Meet Joe Black, starring Anthony Hopkins as an aging media mogul, and Brad Pitt once again. What do you know? As death. Uh, who gives Hopkins' character a few extra days with his family in exchange for teaching him about life. And along the way, Death falls in love with his daughter. I wish Death would pay me a visit right now. (laughs) (laughs) I wish that his daughter would... No, I don't. I'm happily married. Uh, (laughs) But I do like that woman a lot. Claire Forlani, what happened to her? She just kind of disappeared. She's been in stuff. This is a mystery man, and then she was... Yeah, I think she's the weak link of this movie, um, but doesn't quite kill it for me. I disagree. She's she's really... People go one way or the other on her. I think the weak link in this movie is actually Bradley Pitt. No, he's great And his frosted tips. Oh, yeah, the hair's bad. You can't take him seriously. It's three hours of not being able to... It was the boy band era. Give the guy a break. Do you agree? that it's a comedy. Lance also I had really funny. I did. It was the lamest thing ever. Claire Forlani, um, I, I like her. She kind of came from the um, Nev Campbell school of acting where you always look like somebody's blowing in your eyes yeah. all the time. <laughs> You're like, you can barely keep your eyes open because somebody just keeps blowing in them. So true. <laughs> it's like that guy that was on Third Rock from the Sun. 
<laughs> All right. So while it has a 51% on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, really? 51%. Yeah. It seems to be a movie people either love or hate. It mo- a lot of people complain about the length, which at three hours long is a long movie. Is it the longest comedy of all time? Well, it depends on if you consider it a comedy or not. So, but um, in terms of the three hours, I love the pacing of this movie, that it's the kind of movie that I love to like sink into like on a rainy day. And it's just a movie that evokes a mood. It's like classy and elegant, but at the same time, we're looking at a story about death coming to experience our world. And that just, the way that all pooled against each other was just, it created this very odd atmosphere to yeah. me. Yeah. That mixed with the comedy. I mean, I, I'm being totally serious. I, I agree. The, the tone, and everyone talks insanely <laughs> slow in this movie. Yeah. I think it's why it's three hours long. Yeah. Because I don't, I can't think of a time in the movie where anybody talks in at any like right. decent yeah. speed. It's a very sweet, sentimental film about death, and it shouldn't mm-hmm. work, but it just does. Yeah, I agree. I really enjoyed uh, it. But this, it's the, the backlash against this movie was before it even came out because I mean, I was a, really? I've been in, yeah, I've been an Entertainment Weekly subscriber for years. <laughs> How many years? Again? And before it came out, oh, like like ninety two. Um, <laughs> back when they still printed magazines. Yeah. He's not one of those ninety fivers. Yeah, yeah, this no, goes back to no, ninety two. I started at the, yeah. the front end. Yeah, he didn't jump on the bandwagon when everybody else did. <laughs> oh, I thought you'd been subscribing <laughs> for ninety two years. <laughs> <laughs> Back when Greta Garbo was yeah. on the cover. <laughs> no, but the backlash that started before it was even released because A, it was super expensive. I mean, it was $90 million for, for basically a three-hour drama. Why do people get so wrapped up in that? Yeah, who cares? It's not, they didn't use tax money to do it. I mean, like, what, what, are, what are people so upset about? Brad right? Pitt's I mean, tips Brad Pitt. were so frosty. They probably had to redo those yeah. every single day. They're doing a new color. <laughs> I agree with you, Hudson. I, I I can't remember a more divisive film. I remember getting in knockdown, drag out arguments with people about this movie. And I this, remember this there was being not a lot of talk this was about not it. a film that I ever heard anybody say, "Yeah, it's okay." Like you either loved it or hated it, and there was a very clear mm-hmm. line between those two camps. And so it's kind of a reflection of what matters in life. So from small things that death starts to appreciate, like peanut butter or cake or kissing, to the bigger things like legacy and family and love. I hope death didn't discover football because he'd blow his brains out. <laughs> Sorry. I think death was responsible for <laughs> how that ended up. When Hopkins' character is giving his uh, youngest daughter advice on relationship advice, it's one of my favorite monologues. And, and in I fact, knew you'd latch onto this. Yeah, when I played in a band, we put this entire monologue on a shirt. <laughs> Sounds illegal. But... Sounds like you're going to make fun of it. I want you to get swept away, Elvin. I want you to levitate. I want you to sing with rapture and dance like a dervish. Oh, that's all? Yeah, be deliriously happy, or at least leave yourself open to me. I know it's a cornball thing, but love is passion. Obsession. Someone you can't live without. I say, fall head over heels. Find someone you can love like crazy and who'll love you the same way back. How do you find him? Well, you forget your head and you listen to your heart. I'm not hearing any heart. Because the truth is, honey, there's no sense living your life without this. To make the journey and not fall deeply in love. Well, you haven't lived a life at all. Who uses the word dervish? Yeah, that was my question. <laughs> dervish. I do want to talk about the director, Martin Brest. Yeah, what a weird career. He's He made six feature films. Yeah, Beverly Hills Cop, Midnight Run, Sin of a Woman. Pretty good. Major Black. Great. Geely. <laughs> so, yeah. So One what, of these things is not like the other. <laughs> What's really weird is, I mean, Meet Joe Black kind of, he was so like distraught by the reception of this that he took five years off. And then Geely he made, and it was just 
destroyed, not because it's a bad movie or not. I haven't seen it, but because I thought of that everybody time, said it was a bad movie. I think it was the whole Ben Affleck and yeah, it was just some real life uh, canoodling. Lo, yeah. So there was, I mean, that kind of blew up for that movie and came out, and then he just basically gave up. Jordan, in credit song, what'd you think? Uh, I don't remember what it was. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah. Which has been well, way overplayed n- at this point now, in plenty yeah. of movies, but that was the first time I had ever heard yeah. it. And I just thought it was the perfect ending yeah. for this movie. Uh, I don't think I heard it because I was laughing so hard. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Gibby. So, my number three pick for underrated film is from 1994, the fifth film from the Coen brothers called The Hudsucker Proxy. This comedy follows Norville Barnes, played by Tim Robbins, in what I think is a perfect role for Tim Robbins. A naive. Nope. A naive. Nope. A n- Naive. <laughs> I am saying it right. I think you just said it. I think you said it right <laughs> twice. Same, three times in a row. <laughs> He's so self-conscious now. Poor Gibby. Look what we've done to him. A naive country boy who has just moved to the big city after graduating from Muncie, Indiana Community College with honors. Norville unwittingly becomes the president and CEO almost immediately of Hudsucker Industries, placed there by a ruthless board member intent on lowering the stock value of the company so that he and the other board members can buy all their stock at a low price and regain control of the company. I think the setup is probably better done by actually playing a clip from the movie. My God, you're animals. How could you discuss his stock when the man has just left 45 floors? 44. Not counting the mezzanine. Quit showboating, Addison. The man is gone. Question now is whether we're gonna let John Q. Public just waltz in here and buy our company. What are you suggesting, Sydney? Certainly, we can't afford to buy a controlling interest. Not while the stock is this strong. How soon before HUD's paper hits the market? January 1st. 30 days, four weeks. A month at the most. One month to make the blue chip investment of the century look like a round trip ticket on the Titanic. We play up the fact that HUD is dead. So the film begins when Norval tries to sell his big idea to the company. And it's for kids, you know. This this movie is one that I have loved since I first saw it way back in 1994. I'd always kind of liked the Coen brothers, and their sense of humor just sort of hit, hit me uh, right in the right spot. And I think this is just a really fun movie. It's sweet and innocent, and it's really funny. And uh, in, in the Coen brothers' au revoir. Oh. Does that mean goodbye in French? <laughs> Uber, Uber. Trying to say order. Yeah, Uber. In the in the Coen Brothers filmography, it's very different from all their other movies. It's it's pretty adventurous and has a lot of special effects, and I think it's a lot of fun. I'm continuously baffled why this isn't mentioned among the Coen's best movies. And the, the even stranger thing is, it seems to be the Coen Brothers movie that even Coen Brothers fans haven't seen. I'm um, a big Coen Brothers fan, and I had never seen it. You oh, still really? haven't ever seen it? I watched it this you watched week. Watched it this oh. week. It's quirky and weird and hilarious, and it's just total fun from start to finish. I mean, the plot is about the invention of the hula hoop, for heaven's sakes. I mean, it's just, it's ridiculous, but yeah. it's wonderful. I, I didn't love it. Oh, okay. Well, interesting. I didn't hate it either. I thought the story was weak. Oh, if you want to be an <laughs> you can. <laughs> I feel like the filmmaking, if this can make sense, like the, the it was so, the creativity is just like overflowing in this. There, mm-hmm. It is one of the coolest looking movies. It, it uses so many brilliant ideas that are very Cohen. I felt like it was them preparing for Big Lebowski. I feel like it's stylistically, yeah, it's yeah. very similar, but without 
the story. Well, I also couldn't figure <laughs> out, I couldn't figure him out. Like he acts dumb, but I couldn't figure out if he really was dumb. Uh, there's a scene with him and Jennifer Jason Lee, who is amazing in this movie. Yeah. I was blown away by her. Um, but where he's dictating an angry letter to her and he sounds really smart. And so I thought that he was pretending. If, I was confused no, a I lot think of the he's time. Dumb. And he just used that from his Muncie, Indiana college business, knew how to talk. Oh, okay. But there were so many amazing things in this movie and I thought there were some really great scenes. But on the on the whole, it just didn't really deliver for me. The scene where the hula hoop gets discovered that is, mo- is one of my favorite. The, the montage is amazing. Yeah, is one of my favorite scenes ever in a movie. The shot um, of the boy doing, picking it yeah. up and starting to hula hoop so is the, amazing. So the idea here is that the hula hoop gets released. It's a total failure. And we see a, a, a toy shop in some random town. And the, the toy store owner gets fed up. He throws all the hula hoops out. And one just keeps rolling and rolling and rolling across the town, across streets. <laughs> it lands in, the, in front of a boy who picks up and starts doing these amazing tricks with it. And simultaneously, <laughs> a nearby school has just let out. And all these kids run out. And they happen to be right next to the kid when this happened and it does this slow motion shot of him mm-hmm. doing these tricks it's playing i don't know what the name of the score is it's something you'd recognize but it's, I, it's I, the song from uh um, adventure yeah yeah sometimes <laughs> i go on youtube and just watch that scene <laughs> so go, go on youtube watch just just pull up hudsucker proxy hula hoop and watch that scene it's phenomenal yeah yeah it's a, it's a it's a lot of fun uh, i should say i mean it takes place in un in, in some time, like it doesn't actually give a defined time, but it's it's <laughs> in the it does it does nineteen fifty eight. Okay, so it takes place I in nineteen fifty eight in the United States of America. <laughs> the, <laughs> the through line of the movie is the is New Year's Eve. It actually gives the day New oh. Year's Eve of nineteen fifty seven. Maybe into I haven't seen this movie. Maybe I'm thinking of something else. Um, <laughs> yeah, so it takes place in the fifty and the the dialogue's very kind of rat a tat tat like like the thirties comedies. Mm-hmm. They did that on purpose, and I think this is it. Just I loved it from the first time I saw it. Uh, it's the only PG-rated Coen Brothers movie. Hmm. It was also the biggest budget so, that. So for had. our eight-year-old listeners out yeah. there, uh, <laughs> yeah. this movie's for you. This movie's show it to your kids, Joe Parisi. It's interesting. They, they, it seems like they built some crazy, amazing sets. The mailroom oh, yeah. set. Mm-hmm. Paul Newman's character, Musburger, his office is this long, like corridor yeah. office behind the the big clock on the building, and there are these amazing shots of. There's shadows on the wall. It's it's amazing. And this is Roger Deakins, the director of photography, his second movie with Coens. And he's arguably the greatest cinematographer. Greg Toland. Yeah, um, well, we can argue about it. <laughs> That's um, our next episode, <laughs> Best Cinematographers. It was uh, a we'll play this clip. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but this movie, this, I think this is Deakins' most fantastical work. It's, yeah. it's, it's really remarkable looking. All righty, Lance, number two. Uh, my number two film is The Heiress, 1949 <laughs> film by William Wyler. It tells the story of Catherine Sloper, a naive young woman who comes from a wealthy family and falls in love with a handsome young man of modest means named Morris, played by Montgomery Clift. Morris is the first man to ever show Catherine any attention. Her emotionally abusive father begins to suspect that Morris is only using his emotionally fragile daughter for her money. I love finding diamonds in the rough with movies, and this is one of the greatest I've ever found. Uh, I came across it on Turner Classic Movies one night and couldn't believe how good it was. One of the greatest mysteries of my film watching career, is that a proper way to put that? Is, career's, career's a little strong. Hobby? Yeah, is how I went, you know, 
30 plus years without not only seeing this movie, but never even having heard of it yeah, until I just yeah. came across it randomly. It's not mentioned among the greatest American films or at all, but it, it totally should be. And, and the oddest part of that is it's not like this is a movie people are split on. Some movies are underrated or go unseen because a lot of people just disagree on whether it's good. Every person I've ever forced to watch this, including a couple of you guys, yep. loved yeah. it. Um, if you go on IMDb, it has an 8.3, which talking about earlier, that, that is a crazy high score. So it's not like this is a film people have mixed opinions on. It's just that no one has seen it. And I honestly do not understand why. It was Apparently, also, it's not quite as good as Latrue. Well, you know, one hole, less. So. It, at the time, though, it was nominated for eight Academy Awards. Yeah, it won it four. It won mean, four of them. However, it's it, but it was completely forgotten. Yeah, it's, like it, nobody it, talked yeah, about it. It just it vanished. That, yeah, Catherine is one of the most tragic, sympathetic characters I've ever seen in a movie. She just wants to be loved and wants to believe that this this guy truly loves her for her, not because he's a fortune hunter. And you know, we hate her father for dashing those dreams, and we want him to be wrong, but we're not sure if he is. And and it becomes less clear as the film goes on what Morris's intentions are. In that regard, it almost turns into a a little bit of a mystery movie. Mm-hmm. Like the last film I covered, this is one of the greatest endings I've ever seen in a film. And, and part of it is that you could probably discuss it for hours. We should do that. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of the only movies I've ever seen where I can't figure out if it's tragic, hopeful, sad, happy. I literally have yeah. no idea. But the change we see Catherine go go through is, for lack of a better word, totally badass, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm not going to spoil it. I recommend that the viewer go watch it for themselves and see what they think. It aired last month on TCM. Oh, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> it's, actually oh, airing, it's actually airing this so Sunday, it out, which then. I guess is last month. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, Lance, um, you occasionally make some movie recommendations that I actually watch. Oh. Uh, and the, and this was lo- one of them, and I really flipped out over I think we it. watched it together, didn't we? All in this room? Oh, uh, Maybe. Did we? Yeah. yeah. Oh. In the studio. Sweet invite, guys. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I was reading that the play and novel version has the Montgomery Cliff character um, be more of a villain. Oh. And that they made him more of romantic because of the actor. And I think that's what makes the movie work so well. It wouldn't have worked mm-hmm. the Yeah, other it way is well. because you're on the fence about him. And, and there's a moment where you start to think, oh, even if he is trying to rip her off, they can make it work. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. Like, if she's okay with that and he's okay with that, then you, you you kind of just want her to be with someone. You want her to be happy, you know? Yeah. And it's, it's those kind of subtleties that it plays with that I feel like movies of that time didn't really play with. Right. That it just feels really smart. And it's, it's really just really beautiful movie. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. I loved it. The film seems to just, it's, it's so rare that it seems like a lot of times when people are making a movie, they have a great idea for a first act or a second act or the first half's really good mm-hmm. to see a film get just progressively better as it goes. And just continue that all the way through to the end is just a very rare thing. And I think that's one thing that made me really appreciate this one. Eris! Ed Eris! <laughs> Ed Eris. You couldn't, you couldn't work it in any better than that? Yeah. Nope. I just said it. Yeah. Do you think Ed Eris would, would like to hear us? Nope. You know, I've always had a hard time predicting what Ed Harris would like. I've never been shy about that. I feel like we're just trying to keep this going. Yeah. But it's like oh, you mean uh, uh, let's move on. hairless Ed Eris? <laughs> <laughs> All right, Jordan, number two, go. Okay, so four years after Tony Scott directed Spy Game, he made a little movie called Domino that I believe Hudson loves. Yeah, I love that movie. Uh, I've never seen it. This is not the movie we're talking about. (laughs) No, it's not. Anyway, (laughs) Domino was written by a young man named Richard Kelly. This man directed my number two pick in 2009, The Box. Here's the setup. A family down on their luck receives a visit from a peculiar stranger delivering a box. The box has one button. Let me explain If you push the button, two things will happen. First, someone somewhere in the world, whom you don't know, 
you will receive a payment of one million dollars. What would you do? Do you press it? Well, from from that from that point on, it's just pure dervish. <laughs> <laughs> Well, is it like a whirling dervish <laughs> or just a pure dervish? <laughs> Don't know. Cameron Diaz and James Marsden star as this family down in their luck uh, that could really use a million dollars. Spoiler alert, they press it. <laughs> uh, and that's when things really start to take off. And they are faced with an infinitely more difficult choice. What if, the, what if that decision was just like, eh, hell, I don't know, press it. Yeah, like the second, <laughs> so before he even finishes the proposal, <laughs> yeah. it's really eerie, and she just hits it halfway through. <laughs> Sorry, I have this thing with buttons. I just yeah. have to press them. Well, you know, that was actually one thing that really surprised me about this movie, is I thought it was all going to lead up to the end when they determine whether to press it. Oh, no. That decision's made pretty quickly. Yeah. Um, so Richard Kelly wrote the screenplay, but not the original story. The short story, Button Button, which first appeared in Playboy magazine in 1970. <laughs> I was about to say I read it, and I did, but I yeah. didn't read it in Playboy magazine. <laughs> not in 1970? Yeah. That story was written by Richard Matheson, the king of sci-fi adaptations. Yeah. His novels and short stories and screenplays stretch far and wide. The Omega Man, I Am Legend, Spielberg's Jaws Blueprint, Duel, The Twilight Zone, The Outer Limits, The Night Stalker, and The Night Strangler, two TV movies that were pivotal inspirations for the creation of X-Files, The Alfred Hitchcock Hour, and on and on and on. Well, it's interesting. This feels like a really long Twilight Zone episode. Yeah. That's kind of what well, it... it I, I believe it, it originally was, yeah. or Outer Limits. Outer Limits. Yeah, it was on Outer Limits, yeah. or Night Gallery, or... One of them. He wrote for all of them. Night Rider. <laughs> yes. It's a weird episode. <laughs> Super weird. Uh, Kit actually pressed the button. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Richard Kelly, of course, is best Mike, known. Michael. Michael. I'm hitting the button now, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> Richard Kelly, of course, is best known for his cult classic, Donnie Darko. And the box absolutely delivers another dose of weirdness and confusion. There's no shortage of that. Nor is there a shortage of beautiful cinematography and hair-raising chills. I do think the film is a bit miscast, really just with Cameron Diaz. Yeah. You guys don't like Cameron Diaz? She's ru- no, it's not that I don't it, like her. It, yeah. She just, just doesn't. She shouldn't be in this. She doesn't work in this movie. She's well, got this terrible Southern accent, which yeah. I don't know why she had to have a Southern accent. It didn't make any sense. Because it takes place in Virginia, and so they just Nobody thought, in Virginia talks nobody like, no, like that they, in Virginia. they don't. They really don't. <laughs> Maybe in the 70s? No, they don't. Once you get over that... It raises enough thought-provoking questions and head-spinning mysteries to keep the conversation going long after the credits have rolled. And that's where the real power of the box resides, with a choice that must be made but impossible to choose. And while Kelly could have left it open, he raises the stakes by answering that question and forcing the audience to judge that action for themselves. Richard Kelly's style and inclination towards complex weirdness was probably too much for most audiences. But it's a shot right in the heart for me. I, I, I loved the first half of this film. I felt like it really fell off the second half. That was kind of a criticism I saw of it. Just because it got places. too weird? Well, it just it got too convoluted, I felt. I felt like there were some scenes that should have just been edited out. Like It just felt mm. like they threw the kitchen sink in there, and it was just too much. Seems like yeah. a real uh, Richard Kelly thing. Yeah. Well, and, and, yeah, and that was kind of what I wanted to talk about. Richard Kelly, is he's had a, he's had a very frustrating career because he, you know, he did Donnie Darko back in 01, and, it, it, and he's kind of been riding the coattails of that ever since and I don't mean that as a knock against him it just seems like it, he kind of reminds me of like a mad scientist who who made this one amazing formula once and he's been in this lab ever since trying to figure <laughs> out how he did it you know like yeah. trying to get the sure. right balance of chemicals but I, I think the other side of that is probably just that this is the kind of stuff that he's really interested in this is mm-hmm. just weird off the wall wacky he, convoluted he, stuff. he is he just executed it better with right. Donnie Darko and I never feel like he's quite gotten back there and, well, and sure. I hope he hasn't done anything since this movie yeah. eight years ago well that and you know I think the problem is I don't think people are willing to give him 
that nobody's know, willing to give him money bu- budgets now. anymore. I, I think he's kind of gotten, unfortunately, a reputation as a bit of a one-hit wonder, which I, I hope that's not true. I mean, it's just as a film goer, I'd love to see him make more great yeah. films. I mean, obviously, I love this movie. I, th- I think it has its flaws, but I, I think that the, the questions it raises are, are some of the most interesting ones. I think you're right in comparing it to Donnie Darko because I think it does do a lot of the same thing as Donnie Darko did, just not in the right like proportions, if that makes sense. Sure. Like Donnie Darko was so perfectly balanced between weird and confusing and certainty and uncertainty, and this movie just kind of went the wrong direction. It just it, it wasn't it tipped the wrong way. I yeah. guess is kind of how I felt about it. But I'm, I guess I'm confused on how you ended up on it. Like you. Not very positive. Yeah. I, I mean, <laughs> that's, that's fine. And, and, no, I didn't. I not didn't, well. It, it was just like Richard Kelly's career. It was frustrating to me yeah, yeah. because it, it had it had so much going for it, and the first half was was riveting. Yeah, I mean, I, I loved the first half. You're right. It was gorgeously shot. The plot was fascinating. I was really excited to see where it was going to go, and then when I saw where it went, I just felt like it was going in so many directions. And like I said, they just tried to throw everything in there, and I just you know, a bit of a spoiler alert. But when they, I thought it was weird. They open up the box at the end, and it's uh, Gwyneth Paltrow's. Head. Yeah. yeah, that was a little see weird. That coming. That was a little What's weird. in the box? He just pops his head in real quick. What's in the box? Because he was like, I want to be in every underrated movie ever. <laughs> uh, <laughs> this movie did receive an F cinema score from audiences upon release, and it was huh. the only film, I think, that year to get an F. It got panned bad. I think there was some excitement around it because it just the if you hear just the tagline of it, it sounds fascinating. Yeah, I think people were just expecting something they didn't get. I just I would like to watch this with everybody I know and then talk to them about it afterwards. And let's do it. Okay, press pause. You have a list. Yeah, you have a list of everyone the, you know. We can skip yeah. the first. We can skip the first fifteen minutes because I've seen that of this movie. Oh, good, good. It's kind of rude to everyone else he knows. But. Hmm. My number two pick, Cloud Atlas. Cloud Atlas is the awfully ambitious 2012 film written and directed by the Wachowskis and Tom Tykwer. Tykwer? I think that's how you say that? Twicker? No. The Y comes first. It's based on a book by David Mitchell. The movie tells six different stories in six different genres across six different locations over six different time periods from the 1800s to far in the future. Uh, 106 years after the fall. That's no, correct. 100, yeah, 106 winters after the fall, which I thought that was the fall of Adam at first, and I was really uh, confused when that you thought you went like, back. speedboat came up. Uh, sounds <laughs> sounds pretty dervish yeah. to me. <laughs> oh, it's whirling all right. And the same actors play different parts in each section. Often they'll change sex and or race. It's hard to give a synopsis, but in 1849, a dying lawyer attempts to reunite with his wife in the Pacific Isles. In 1936, a young gay composer battles in older mentor. In 1973, San Francisco, a journalist, uncovers a nuclear cover-up. In 2012, a British publisher is sent prematurely to a nursing home. In 2144, a clone attempts to overthrow the government. And in 2321, post-apocalyptic society, a man attempts to save his people from a cannibalistic tribe and maybe save the human race in the process. So obviously, this movie is completely nuts. Mm -hmm. I adore the Wachowskis, and I think they are some of the most brilliant filmmakers working right now. I think they play, they do this unique thing in in that they play on such a large canvas, but they are always taking risks with what they do. And sometimes they knock it out of the park, sometimes they don't, oftentimes in the same movie. They remind me of James Cameron in a lot of ways, and that when they make a movie, they're not just trying to tell a great story or make a great movie. They're trying to break some sort of new ground and be visionaries. Yeah. And and some like you said, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, but you're thankful there are directors out there like that. And there, there aren't many of them. And it's a rare thing for a director to be able to get to that point and have that desire to do it. So at a hundred million dollars, it's one of the highest budgeted 
independent films ever made. Yet the Wachowskis believed in this project so much they put seven million of their own money into making the film. To be fair, Which is unheard of. Off of the Matrix, the Wachowskis have millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars. Nearly seven Shit. million dollars. <laughs> they have at least that. seven million dollars. So it's not that impressive. Huh. Yeah. Um, the directors actually split up the segments with the Wachowskis taking three segments and Tykwer taking the other three. And the way they intertwine the stories is masterful in both the script and editing. Tykwer also scored the film, which they did in pre-production, so that they scored it to go along with the writing before they even filmed any of the scenes. Yeah, uh, as the score is phenomenal. Yeah, one of my favorite it scores is, in is. recent years. Let's play it. Great. Whole thing? Movie. I think it's a lot of fun. I think we've we, uh, somehow today we ended up with like six movies that are over two and a half hours. Uh, this is <laughs> yeah. this is like the fastest moving one in my opinion. And I don't know if it's because the story cuts, 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 cuts. Yeah. And when you watch this movie, it takes about an hour and a half to get oriented mm-hmm. because there's no rhyme or reason from time period to time period. Yeah, really, and they're connected more thematically than anything else. Right. I'm still utterly perplexed by this movie, not in an upset way. Uh-huh. Not in a glowing way either. I really don't have any idea how to feel about this movie. And I don't, and maybe I missed something because I watched it really late at night, but. Were you stoned? I was a little bit stoned. <laughs> okay. um, well, I will say it requires a second viewing or a third or a yeah. fourth. And even Ebert and here's the review of it said, you got to watch it a second time. Yeah. You gotta watch and it and I think time. I will. What really amazed me by, I think the great accomplishment in this movie is that it is somehow with all these cuts and with all these time periods and the stories, I can't figure out how they mean anything together. It's never irritating. Mm-hmm. Like I, I really just yeah, thought it flowed really well. It's, yeah. There's one thing overall from this episode of Four Friends Fight About Film that I'm really confused about, though. Because in this movie, Cloud Atlas, Tom Hanks says, um, one hour and 45 minutes in, that the dead never stay dead. But in Gibby's pick, Hudsucker Proxy, Musburger says, when you're dead, you stay dead. <laughs> Don't believe me? Ask Warring Hudsucker. Mm-hmm. So who are we going to believe? I, I'm going to go with the second one. Um, I <laughs> feel like on based on what I've observed, <laughs> at least, and maybe you guys have had a different experience, which I'd love to hear about, as would, no. as would a lot of people. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I've noticed they tend to, tend to stay dead. Huh. That's me. So this is the rare movie for me to make an impact on me spiritually, I feel like. So Somni, the clone Christ figure in the film, says, Our lives are not our own. From womb to tomb, we are bound to others. Past and present. And by each crime and every kindness, we birth our future. 
And that's basically what the film explores throughout all of these timelines and their interconnectivity of how our actions today not only affect those around us in our time, but to continue to affect those for years to come. But it's not quite as like Captain Planet as that sounds. And while it doesn't, it doesn't <laughs> spell everything out, like any good film, it leaves you with lingering questions. Like, what the hell did I just watch? <laughs> <laughs> and I love this quote from Rebert, uh, who gave it a four star review. He says, surely this is one of the most ambitious films ever made. Like Lance said, Uh, the little world of film criticism has been alive with interpretations of it, which propose to explain something that lies outside explanation. Any explanation of a work of art must be found in it, not taken to it. As a film teacher, I was always being told by students that a film by David Lynch, say, or Werner Herzog was a retelling of the life of Christ or Moby Dick. My standard reply was maybe it's simply the telling of itself. Mm. All right. Who's next? Uh, Gibby. The Gibster. (laughs) Keep yourself that nickname. Kyle T. Gibby Gibson. (laughs) My number two underrated film is from 2007, the coming-of-age comedy Son of Rambo, directed by Garth Jennings. So the story follows young Will Proudfoot, a middle school-aged boy whose father died mowing the lawn a couple of years earlier. He lives with Why his is that m- funny? Because it's funny in the scene when he explains what happened. Because oh, we're all watching that right now. Yeah. <laughs> Context, Gibb. Yeah. So he lives with his mother and sister and grandmother in a small house. They're members of a uh, very strict religious community doesn't allow its members to watch TV or listen to music or really do anything fun because there's potential temptations involved. They don't allow you to die while mowing the lawn. Yeah. It was a big... <laughs> That's why he died probably because he was had headphones yeah. in. Will's not allowed to watch documentaries and classes so he has to sit in the hallway and one day he meets Lee Carter uh, who introduces himself to Will by beating a tennis ball directly at his head. Lee had to go to the hallway because he was thrown out of his class. So Will is quiet, reserved sheltered lee the other boy the polar opposite crude smokes watches a lot of movies like you when you were a kid yeah much like me at age 12 um (laughs) when lee introduces innocent will to rambo first blood something goes off inside of will and the two boys decide to make their own movie called son of rambo the rest of the film explores this friendship and their burgeoning creativity and just i mean really it's a movie about friendship and finding acceptance and a place to fit in so I first saw this film about nine or ten years ago. It had played a few festivals, uh, but I'd heard a ton of great things about it, and I loved it. I mean, I think it's really fun. It's funny. Uh, it does a great job of showing the excitement that cinema and making movies can have on a youngster. There's a scene at the beginning right after Will first watches Rainbow First Blood. He's just bursting with imagination and excitement and pure joy. He runs from Lee's house all the way home, pretending like he's in the movie. And it brought me back to being 10 or 11, 12 years old mm-hmm. watching movies, because that's the way I felt after every movie I watched. Like Conan, when you rubbed your sword Yeah, when rock. I was rubbing my sword a lot. <laughs> yeah, when I rubbed my sword until it got really sharp and Okay, hard. all right. <laughs> yeah, I love this movie. Um, Garth Jennings had previously directed Hitchhiker's Guide before this, which I also loved, but a lot of people were split on. But I just think this movie is so much fun and, and so sweet and so kind of sentimental at the same time. I was legitimately excited when you put this on your list because I saw this years ago. I loved it, and I, I was thrilled I had an excuse to watch it again. I fell in love with it. It's a love letter to the movies, and I'd argue it's one of the best films I've ever seen about movies, specifically how and why we connect with them and what they mean to us. What struck me watching it the second time around is what a pointed criticism it is at Hollywood. It starts off as these two kids making a movie out of pure passion and love for movies, and the story arc really follows them as the production gets bogged down in things that shouldn't matter. You know, a, a couple of us have had some experience in our own careers dealing with the Hollywood system, and you quickly realize the worst thing about Hollywood is that it's infested with people who don't really care about or love movies. They love fame and attention, and Hollywood is filled with so many people who were there for the wrong reasons that it's why it's become such a disgusting world to work in and why so many bad movies were made. And this film criticizes that while also getting 
getting across the power of movies and it speaks strongly to anyone who just you know loves movies and those people who would still be wanting to make movies even if they never made a dime or got on the cover of a magazine for doing it mm. yeah it's it, i didn't even i haven't even thought of it like that that's very true well there's a character french kid. yeah it's a it's a french foreign exchange student <laughs> who comes over and becomes the most popular kid in the school he finds out they're making a movie and he wants to be the star of it and once he gets involved he brings his whole entourage into yeah. it and he's not doing it because he wants to he wants to make movies he's doing it because he feels like oh this will make me even cooler and it's very wes anderson-y i mean the film itself is Got a lot of Wes Anderson touches, which is probably Absolutely, another reason yeah. why I love it. But he does something great with this this French character. Like you said, he just sort of comes in and <clears throat> kind of takes over. And, and, it, and you're a little surprised at where it ends up. Oh, with that character? Yeah. 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 yeah there's, there's a, I mean, I'll, I'll go ahead and give it away. But, but once he gets back on the bus with all the other French kids and they go home, all the other French kids start making fun of him because he's totally yeah. pulled the wool over the school's eyes. And, and, and to me, <laughs> you know, I, I don't want to get into too in-depth the criticism of the star system but 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 to me that's kind of what that is it's so it's so delusional and like people think that these like big megastars are gods and they're just people Mm -hmm. and and to me they're just like us (laughs) i mean they are people people make them out to be these like otherworldly figures and they're just people who worked hard at something and got kind of lucky and they got where they are they get plastic surgery just like us yeah Yeah. they Uh, hire maids just like us (laughs) yep i want to bring maids with plastic surgery (laughs) We don't have like some hideous maid walking around now. <laughs> I want to bring up uh, the very, very beginning of the movie. Jennings does such a fabulous job of introducing the two main characters before they meet each other. And it sets up, I mean, immediately you know where they are. So the first scene is Will outside the movie theater protesting the, the showing of Rambo First Blood. And Will is reading a passage from scripture. Cuts to inside the theater and you get Lee, who is sitting in the non-smoking section of the theater, uh, watching First Blood, smoking a cigarette and videotaping the movie. So immediately you know, this is who these two characters are. And this is where they're coming from. This is what they've done for their <laughs> you, lives. You, you know, when you said that, you said like, you know exactly where they are. Like it was amazing that the director let you know the location <laughs> yeah. they were in. The director would get a good it, it, looks, it looks just like a movie theater. They set the setup. It's amazing. I've never seen anything like it. All right, Lance, number one. The Life and Death of Colonel Blimp, the 1943 film by Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger, who are kind of becoming fixtures on this show. Yeah. Um, <sighs> this movie tells the story. Of- <laughs> <laughs> that was Gibby's sigh. In case yeah. no one could. Where was I? Oh, here's one of the top 50 films of all time. It's underrated. It's, I don't in, know what of, it's in Roger Ebert's great movie book. It's underrated. i got to talk about it. I don't know what you're doing. I want it to stop <laughs> right now. This tells the story of Clive Wincandy, a colonel in the British Army, and his life as it spans two world wars. The film follows four story threads. Wincandy's perpetual longing for the first woman he ever loved, his friendship with a German officer, his refusal to give up archaic, civilized ideas about the nature of war, and its defense of how little the young understand about what the old have been through. I came across this film when, as Gibby said, Roger Ebert included it in his great movies list. And when I went onto the IMDb page, I saw one person after another asking, how did I not know about this movie? Many of, many of them claiming it was one of the greatest films they'd ever seen. Hudson, you talked in your Speed Racer segment a few episodes back about how when we started a podcast, this was a film you immediately had in your head as one you wanted to talk about mm-hmm. and, and hopefully introduce more people to. And for me, that movie is Life and Death of Colonel Blimp. My personal top 10 changes regularly and is almost impossible to nail down. But there are days where I would put this film on it. It made an incredible impression on me and it's become one of my favorite films of all time. One of the things you have to understand about this movie is that it's a touching portrayal of this man who is based on a comic strip that was prominent in the early 1900s. And this comic character was purely a joke. And it's incredible that they not only harvested that to make this movie, but actually made it work. So to put it in perspective, it would be kind of like taking a character like Elmer Fudd and turning him into this deep character study. And that's basically what they did. (laughs) Let's do it. (laughs) Let's not. Uh, the film sort of dances around time, opening with the older Win Candy, 
in a scene where the younger officers are mocking him. He's overweight. He has a big mustache. And when Kennedy says to them, you make fun of my mustache, but you don't know how I got it. Mm. And then it flashes back 40 years and we see the colonel as a young man. Well, we, let's talk about that transition. Great. That's pretty incredible. Transition. Yeah. For like 1943, the, the camera work and the where the camera moves, at least in the mm-hmm. film, is super impressive because well, you don't see that in films. Well, you have to remember, too, at that point, the, the nonlinear narrative was a very new thing. Yeah. Stories went in chronological order. So to go back 40 years all of a sudden, I mean, Citizen Kane was, I believe, the first movie to really do anything like that. Yeah. So this this came out on the heels of it, and probably was being filmed while you know when Citizen Kane came out. So this wow. is one of the very first films to do that. And the the transition shot. So they're in the pool, mm-hmm. and he's fighting with this young fella, and then he gets like pushed down in the water, and then mm-hmm. the camera just moves across the pool, and then it shows him coming out of the pool on the other end as a, a single shot. Year younger looks like yeah. yeah, yeah. Which I was a little confused about. <laughs> yeah. At first, I mean, but. okay. So the first twenty minutes of this movie, I was lost. I mean, I, I was too. The first all all I, I recognize is there's a bunch of yelling. At, like, <laughs> like I'm, I, I'm not sure that they didn't think they were creating a stage play. Like, did they not see the boom mics? a foot away from him because uh, everybody yells in the first 20 minutes I mean Clive Candy continues it the whole movie but my goodness just settle down yeah. there, you guys got mics I didn't I didn't find that there was that much yelling the, the beginning actually felt to me a little bit like uh, The Dirty Dozen which is one of my favorite war movies just this like fun loving rambunctious it's group ca- of soldiers it's, ca- it's fun chaos yeah. in the beginning yeah and when the movie settles down and it really engages you that's when it really takes off well so the, the, so the film flashes back 40 years and that's when we really start to tell the story so the mustache that was being made fun of we see why he grew it there was mm-hmm. a reason for it that, that makes sense in his review, Ebert said the following, and I just want to read this because I think it sums it up really well. The most poignant passages involve the general growing older. He looks like a caricature to younger officers with his beefy face, pink complexion, mustache, and raspy voice. But in his heart, he is still young, still in love, still idealistic. At the end of the movie, he looks at a water pool in the basement of his bombed out house and is reminded of a lake across which he once pledged love. And he insists to himself that, he, that it is the same lake and he is the same man. Rarely does a film give us such a nuanced view of the whole span of a man's life. It is said that the child is father to the man. Colonel Blint makes poetry out of what the old know, but the young do not guess. The man contains both the father and the child. This is Lance again. All of the story threads in this film work wonderfully on their own and playing against each other, but it's this one I find most powerful and why I consider this one of the most underrated films ever made. Couple things. Admittedly, I didn't. I was not able to finish this movie. There were parts of it that I that I really enjoyed of that half that I saw, but I, I don't. I I just don't think I understood what was going on most well, of the time. Let me let me say this about that. First time I saw this movie, I didn't love it. Yeah. First time I saw it, I I was I wanted to see it again immediately. And after the second time I watched it, I said that's one of the best movies I've ever seen. So a lot of times when you see a film, your brain isn't really doing what the filmmaker intended because you're trying to logically connect everything. Right. And so you get Which distracted and you can't viewing. really view it the way it was intended to be viewed. Sure. That's why oftentimes a second viewing is needed, is because your brain isn't distracted by having to make all the connect all the dots. And you can really sit back and just kind of immerse yourself in it. And that's what Colonel Blimp requires. It's what Cloud Atlas requires. Requires. I feel what a lot like of the title require. of this movie does it a disservice yeah. too because yeah. it sounds so silly and that's, that's not a, that at all. It's a there's funny, there's it's not a, a Colonel Blimp and there's really no death of Colonel Blimp. Well, Colonel Blimp was the name of the original cartoon character. So at mm. the time that they made this, it made perfect sense to people. Okay. I, but I think that's a really interesting point about the title of the movie doing a disservice because I, I think that's the case with a lot of these movies on the, on our list this episode. But like we talked about with Hudsucker Proxy oh, yeah. and Cloudless. Cloud Atlas is a weird name that doesn't tell you anything. Son of Rambo, even. Son of Rambau yeah. doesn't really did tell we just, you anything. Did we just determine that all these movies are underrated because of the titles? <laughs> I, I, and I think, I think we might have. But I think yeah. Spy Game is also a terrible title. Oh, yeah, yeah, it is. It's not a good title. And, and so 
you're just you end up with this huh. I, I think that actually can play a lot into people wanting to go see a movie I finally saw this movie, uh, finished it this morning, and started it last week, and I really liked it. I know you, you guys have been Is talking that about long? it for years. I yeah. had no idea it was that long. I started long. it last Monday and finished it this morning. <laughs> it's a 73-hour film. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was a lot of fun. It, it goes by pretty quickly. Uh, there's this really cool duel scene about 45 minutes into it that is just awesome. With Lermontov from The Red Shoes. Well, it was in a lot of their films. And I, and I read that David Mamet said that was the perfect scene. I, they have talked David about Mame. that as one of the scenes they're proudest of. <laughs> and what they're proud of is that you don't see the duel. Right. It, it, it makes a decision that was so interesting at that time. Because a lot of what they would have usually done is had this big choreographed scene yeah. where they duel. Instead, what they do is right as the duel's starting, the camera pulls back. It so leaves the building. Crazy crane mm-hmm. shot. It leaves the building. And then we go outside when one or both of them is being rushed into an ambulance. <laughs> so we miss the whole thing. And it's great. But there, the, the, the one part of the movie that I, that I saw and really attached to out of the portion that I saw was their friendship yeah. after the duel is an amazing mm-hmm. bit of film and really pretty touching. If the film has a famous scene, it's the speech that Anton Wahlberg's character gives about, about Nazism. It's, it's wonderful. Yeah. You got to remember this film was made during World War II, so right. it was very much a rallying cry for people. And so this speech was very much needed. Jordan number one. Jordan, could I, could I get a little music? Dun, 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 no, not dun. Jurassic Park. <laughs> <laughs> Over the course of 50 or so years, Roman Polanski has directed some of the greatest thrillers ever made. And this, of course, is my third thriller on this list. And committed some of the wildest felonies. (laughs) (laughs) Some of them are Knife in the Water, Repulsion, Rosemary's Baby, Chinatown. Statutory. Frantic. No. Sorry. Frantic, Death and the Maiden, to name a few. I'd like to add another to that list. The criminally underrated... See what I did there? Mm-hmm. And underseen the Ghost Rider from oh, 2010. Oh, because he's a, he's a criminal. Uh, alleged, yes. <laughs> wasn't, wasn't Ghost Rider also the terrible Nick Cage movie? Yeah, where this he plays is the comic book character. This is yeah. not that one. It's one who writes like writing a book, yeah, not exactly. one who rides like riding a ghost bike. Writer. Big difference. Folks. It stars Ewan McGregor, who I love, as a ghost writer hired to complete the memoirs of a former British prime minister after the original writer dies mysteriously. McGregor begins to uncover long-held secrets that threaten his life and the security of the American and British governments. What sounds like might be a pretty standard political thriller that I just described, in the hands of your average director, is elevated to unseen gem when handled by Polanski. From the very first sights and sounds, Polanski is able to set the mood and tone perfectly and sustain it for the next two hours. On top of ridiculously beautiful cinematography, this movie scratches two big itches for me. The intrigue and ever-ratcheting tension of a superbly crafted thriller, my favorite genre, and two, a look inside a world we rarely get to see. Actually, two worlds combined. The post-political life of a world leader and the job of a ghostwriter. Which in turn tickles that journalism thing I love too. You love tickling journalism. A lot of tickling going on here. I do, I do. Polanski is a master of inserting humor and brilliant details into his films. He's a master of inserting other things. (laughs) (laughs) During post-production in Switzerland, Polanski was arrested and jailed at the request of the U.S. government in connection to this sexual assault case from 1977, from which Polanski had fled and never returned to the U.S. He was held in jail for two months 
and then released on house arrest uh, to his home in Switzerland, awaiting the extradition decision, which he was not extradited. Anyway, during this time, it was post-production, and they actually finished editing while he was in jail, which I think is pretty cool. They didn't halt or pause any of that process. He just, he, d- he did it that whole time. It's just good that he could power through it like that. You know? um, yeah. It's just uh-huh. impressive. Yeah, it really is. He doesn't but, let, he doesn't let no stop him. <laughs> he just goes for it. <laughs> No means maybe. No, op- no <laughs> obstacle. Get, uh, no obstacle gets in this man's way. You know, I I did have some reservation about doing a Roman Polanski movie, even though he's one of my favorite directors of all time. I had a reservation because I had a feeling that something like this would happen. <laughs> <laughs> so actually, a uh, little known fact: the director put his own money towards um, an action sequence in which Ghost Rider ball- battles a helicopter. Yeah, not not true. Not true. <laughs> Uh, you know, like Ghost Rider's like a comic book character. And you guys are real <laughs> uh, Polanski is no slouch with his endings either. Think of Chinatown and Rosemary's Baby, which, for the record, 10 feet away from me is a poster of Chinatown, which is directed by Roman Polanski. Uh, somebody came in here and put uh, that up. Here oh. in Lance's sound studio. I know it is weird. I have the name, his name on my wall. Yeah. It's pretty creepy. Uh-huh. It's like uh-huh. Considering that. all the things that you just said. But the Ghost Rider has one of my favorite endings of all time. In fact, it might be my favorite final Final shot of any movie ever. This is the end that Lance mocked at dinner. I didn't mock. I, I, it was kind of. It was. I lo- let me say this first. Of all, the score to this movie is awesome. Oh, it's a wonderful score. Yeah, yeah. Lance knows something or, or, or another about uh, scoring. Oh, jeez. <laughs> oh, can you can you get arrested for doing a podcast? I like, think the three it, of you should get arrested. For- you know who else should have been arrested? Gordon. <laughs> he was arrested. Yeah. Well, not for long, was he? Yeah, for long. Oh, no. he, just, yeah. he just fled. Okay, let me say this about this movie too. Weirdest James Belushi cameo in a movie. Yeah. Uh, I, 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 awesome. I, w- I would love to hear the conversation that happened between <laughs> his agent and the film. He's like, we got to get Belushi for this. And he's like, all right, James, listen, it's a 40-second uh, part. <laughs> Has no relevance to the rest of the movie. You see, he, what must, happened, he must have had nothing to do not, that day. No, you see, what true. happened is that the last time Polanski was in the U.S., John Belushi was alive, and he thought he was getting John Belushi. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, well, he looks a little different. That's probably the same guy. Well, I'm glad. I'm glad that we've almost touched on the actual movie. Guys, guys, back on task. Another fact I looked up about this: Nicholas Cage's hairpiece required three hours to apply every day. You guys are unbelievable. Absolutely unbelievable. I have ripped plenty of your guys' movies, but for the movie. You guys are terrible people. You're all terrible, <laughs> rotten people. This is going to be our best segment that nobody hears. I, I'll, I will say, I, I, I didn't, the way that they reveal the ending, when I first saw it, I kind of like, and it got kind of silly to me as I thought back about it. I, I don't know. How do you mean? It was just kind of, I mean, I can't go into it without revealing what. Spoil what, it, man. Well, the, the spoiler is that... He's Nobody's been, nobody wants to watch this after all <laughs> yeah, the raving we talked about. Yeah. <laughs> um, the, the idea is that Pierce Brosnan's character was writing a book, right? Or is it Ewan McGregor's character? Right? Who wrote, who's writing the book? Writing. Ewan, Ewan McGregor is the ghost He's writer, writing the yeah. book, right. But I thought he was going off like a manuscript. I don't know. He whatever. is. The, a, a man named Mike McCarr was the original ghostwriter who died mysteriously in Ewan McGregor. You remember, yeah. I, I talked about... What the I, movie I, know, was I was busy earlier. thinking. Was, of, yeah, I was, was busy thinking of statutory. You were busy trying to <laughs> actually rape my. I was segment. trying to focus. Yeah, um, but there's a the idea is that Pierce Brosnan's wife. The twist and spoiler here. She turns out to be a CIA agent. Yes. And the way they reveal it is like on the first page of the book, that first column of letters, it goes down and it says no, like... No, it's the first word a, in every chapter. And the, the idea is that Mike McCara had put it that way. It's, it's a little 
It's a little silly. Yeah, I, I agree. Yeah. It doesn't ruin the movie at all. I didn't hate it. I didn't I hate it. It was just kind of. I think the tone and atmosphere is incredible in this movie. But what happens at the very, very end, and I'm not going to give that away. That was gutsy. And that's what I'm yeah. talking about. Okay. I, I love that. I love the whole ending. But the, I'm talking about the very last shot is my favorite last shot of any movie. The end title designer, which I love the end titles in their design because it's not. It's actually black text on white background which is pretty unique for a for a credit sequence which i, I really enjoy right. i just I like, anyway, like i'm praying anyway, so bad anyway, you make a, a no, little thing just, i can pounce just, on just wait okay just wait right, you it? can you can be an in just a second so the end title designer forgot to use punctuation when writing the end credits so it reads like so assistant is abbreviated and it reads ass designer and <laughs> And ass painter. <laughs> in all honesty, I'm I'm pretty disappointed in you guys right now. Uh, oh, I, I, how do you think I feel about me? I, I feel even worse. I should hope so. Uh, I'm horribly disappointed. You know, ironically, though, Nicolas Cage has a ghostwriter tattoo, but he had to cover it up to play Johnny Blaze. Uh, Haven't you seen this, this movie? I've never seen it. Oh, it's Gibby who saw it. That's Gordon, I have seen this movie. It. I have seen this movie and I, I, I liked it, but I literally remember nothing about the movie uh, except that you do see Ewan McGregor's butt at one point. You do. It's so quick and it's it's hilarious to me. Well, every not time. if you pause it. <laughs> but it's hilarious to me when it happens because Ewan McGregor's fairly famous for being naked in yes. everything he's ever in. So this one, it he's getting in bed and he just it he just sleeps nude. Yeah. But it it I imagine him being like, no, Roman, <laughs> Roman, like, no, you don't please. understand. I'm in it's this movie. Me. I have to be nude. <laughs> so does Nick Cage get his soul back in this? Or what happens? <laughs> anyway. Well, it's a great picture. Sorry, Jordan. He's not happy about it. I'm not. I'm not happy about any of it. Again, how do you think we feel? I didn't want to do this. You didn't? No, I didn't enjoy I any of that. You've been so depressed, <laughs> and I haven't seen you this joyous in years. This is what it took. Okay. You ready for this? Roman Polanski directed Chinatown in 1974. It was written by Robert Town, who co-wrote the story for Days of Thunder with Tom Cruise in 1990. Tom Cruise is given special thanks in the movie that Hudson is about to talk about wow. for his help tweaking the script. And he had wanted to star in it, but couldn't do it due to scheduling. That's right. That's very correct. How's that wow. for That's a segue? That's a wow. great segue. It's a six degrees uh, of Tom Cruise. He was also I think it was the, less than six who degrees. the studio wanted for the Norval Barnes role in Hudsucker Proxy. Uh, they yeah, wanted I Tom Cruise. That, too. that would have been also, terrible. That would have been terrible. Scientology raped Tom Cruise, <laughs> which is exactly what Roman Polanski <laughs> did to an underage girl. So yeah, poor, poor girl. Man, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm just all I'm gonna, I'm not gonna watch any of these movies anymore. I'm just gonna dig up whatever terrible <laughs> whatever thing dirt. I can find about any director that you guys talk about. Yeah, good luck finding something about Michael Powell, the man's a saint. I doubt it. Yeah, uh, Tom Cruise is kind of famous for he, you know, he lives movies, so he'll talk about ideas before they actually get made. And he had wanted to start in this, and he um, he lives movies, and he <laughs> talks about ideas before they get yeah, made. <laughs> that doesn't really make sense. But what are you Let's talking not ever about? Start recording he has a story to add on. He has an incredibly here. unique skill. Of, he, he honed. <laughs> he honed <laughs> never before heard of skill of talking about an idea before, not after. Before it got made. No one had ever seen it, but people told him it wouldn't work. People were like, Cruz, you're, you're crazy. No, make it and then talk about You'll it. You'll get run out of this town, Cruz. Come on, Cruz. The name of the movie is The Brothers Bloom. 
Directed by Ryan Johnson, who brought us Brick, Looper, and a little sci-fi film due later this year. (laughs) The Brothers Bloom tells the story of two sibling con men. Stephen, the eldest, writes the cons, and his brother, who goes by Bloom, is the vulnerable anti-hero of them. They've been pulling cons since they were little, and they're great at it. That is, until Bloom says he wants out. One of my favorite lines is when Bloom says he's tired of Stephen always choosing his life for him, and he says, I wanna, I want a, and Stephen helps him out. You want an unwritten life. So the idea is that Stephen even writes the line for him that he doesn't want his life written. Stephen finally talks Bloom back into one last con. The two set up the mark, a socially awkward, wealthy heiress, heiress, named named Penelope, who collects hobbies. Uh, And they, along with their mute demolitions expert, Bang Bang, take her on the adventure of a lifetime. But like any great con movie, it only gets more complicated from there. This movie is so much fun. The dialogue is so clever, but it still takes itself seriously enough to have real stakes and real emotions at the center of it. It's such a great mix of genres. A love story, an old world adventure story, a con man story, a story about brothers, a story about the stories we tell ourselves. At one point in the movie, Penelope says to Bloom, there's no such thing as an unwritten life, only a badly written one. After seeing this movie, this became my mantra. I had come from a string of disappointments in my personal and professional life, and I was tired of having my story, quote unquote, written for me. So I decided I was going to take the writing of my life into my own hands, and I did. The line so influenced my life that it's the tagline of the screenwriting community I run, uh, which the tagline is, write a better life. Did you have to think about that idea before you made it? You had to talk about it before you made it, or did you just... Oh, you mean like Tom Cruise? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Thank you. I take that as a compliment. I like this movie. This is a really fun movie. I remember seeing it at the theater, and uh, I was really looking forward to it because I'd heard a lot about Ryan Johnson. It's fun. I love con movies, and this did a good long con. I got to tip my hat, man. I love this movie. Awesome. I I had heard you talk about it for a long time, and it always sounded. It wasn't something I was like avoiding. I just never had time to get around to it. And so again, like Son of Rambo, I was really happy you put this on here. Except different because I had never seen this. I loved it. It was fantastic. I can't wait to watch it again. Um, Yeah, but did you guys know that Ryan Johnson was once accused of shoplifting? (laughs) at a Macy's in 1997. I uh, I believe he was uh, acquitted. (laughs) Wait, is that true? No, 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 I can't find any dirt on him. I'm Googling it over here and I can't find it. He's a saint. I'm trying to pay attention to the podcast too. This movie was interesting because it it has a tone I can't quite put my finger on. It felt Wes Anderson-ish at times. Part of it felt a little Tim Burton-y at times. Hmm. But it was just, it felt like a mishmash of a lot of different directors I'd seen before and I couldn't, it was totally unique and I loved that about it. I've always loved Rachel White's and oh, she's her so character in this, in this yeah. man, it is, it is so great. You know, there's always this temptation, I think, with, with female characters to make them noble and kind of above everything and they just make her clumsy and silly and stupid at times and it's okay. Yeah. It works. Like, you, she's so endearing. You just yeah. love her in this movie. Also, I love the actress Rinko Kikuchi. Yeah. Uh, yeah, she Bang was Bang. great. Yeah, she's so great. Yeah. Who doesn't speak most of the time, I think, except for one F word and uh, singing yeah. But she's excellent. The whole cast is amazing. Uh, I don't think we cast. mentioned it's Mark Ruffalo and Adrian Brody playing the brothers. This is a movie as great as Adrian Brody and Mark Ruffalo are. This is a film that's very much carried by the, the women in it. Mm, yeah, they, 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 make, they make this movie. Um, it doesn't work without them. I've always wanted to see it, but I haven't. I think you... <laughs> <laughs> Good point, Jordan. Yeah. He sounds still kind of mad at us after his last <laughs> yeah. segment. I'm I never, I'm never watching any movies that you guys want me to watch ever again. <laughs> Give me number one. Finally, I get to talk about Take Shelter. This is a film I've been wanting to talk about since we started the podcast 
a film that I think is one of the most criminally underrated films, certainly of the past decade. What you're saying is people who didn't see it should be put in jail. That's pretty much what <laughs> I am really? implying at this point. Well, fair enough. Uh, actually, Mike Nichols should be put in jail. Mike Nichols? Jeff Nichols. Jeff Nichols. <laughs> Jeff Nichols should be put in, ma- in you jail. Almost, you almost put the wrong man in prison, Jordan. That's unbelievable. Well, well yeah. Jeff Nichols hasn't done anything either. Yes, he has. He, he killed a man in, in Canada in, in 1986 <laughs> <laughs> when, he was, when he was 15. <laughs> so take shelter. This is Jeff Nichols' 2011 drama slash thriller. So the film follows Curtis, played by Michael Shannon and an awesome performance. He's just a nice guy living in Midwest modest means, the pretty wife and the hearing impaired daughter. And over time, Curtis starts to begin to have nightmares and eventually daydreams, day visions during uh, of, of pending disaster coming. First, it's his dog randomly attacking him, then visions of birds and weird pattern in the sky, then nightmares of his home and family being destroyed by a catastrophic storm. The movie takes you on this journey, showing you both his perspective and the perspective of outsiders, friends and family, as Curtis takes more and more precautions to protect his family and his life. Eventually, he spends money they don't have and time he can't spare to build an underground shelter. So sure is he that his visions are more like a prophecy. While doing all this, he also just wonders if he's just going crazy because his mother has a history of schizophrenia. This is a great film. In fact, it is my number one movie of 2011. Kyle. Yes, even beating out a Harry Potter film. Wow. I know. No Pixar movies that year? No. It was like Cars 2. That's terrible. Uh, That's still a Pixar movie. (laughs) Doesn't count. The first time I saw this, I was just mesmerized the whole movie, and I was left just in shock with at the end of the movie, just how it just enraptured me from the first scene to the end. It's not your typical thriller, you know, all caps type thriller. It's actually... (laughs) It's or a, like Michael a, Jackson thriller. It's not like that. No, it's, it's nothing a, like it's nothing, that. I knew it's nothing like the Michael yeah, Jackson album. Which like I found Jackson's very thriller. disappointing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> kind of went in the yeah, some of his visions. I like, liked it other than there's, that. There's yeah. dancing werewolves and zombies. It's actually it's kind of a really slow moving film, but it's a total I, slow burn. It yeah. absolutely is. And, 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 and that's what makes it work. Yeah. Right. I think it allows time for you know this to sink in and, and you as a viewer to see is this real or is it not? Yeah, it really uh, can't be overstated how amazing that this film is. This might be one we... Have you seen it, Jordan? Yeah, yeah. I, I I own it. Might be one we all, oh. all agree on? I, I really like this movie. I have some problems with it, but I really oh. like it. I, I'm kind of where you are. Yeah. I, I really enjoyed really? it. This is a film that literally rides on the back of Michael Shannon's ability to yell. <laughs> and I, I, mean, I, I mean that as a compliment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The scene where he flips out on the town... Mm. Well, listen up! There is a storm coming! Like nothing you have ever seen! And not a one of you is prepared for it! It's the Noah story, basically. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He, he's yeah. warning people there's things coming. He's having dreams and visions, and he's warning them this thing is coming. He suddenly comes to the realization that everyone thinks he's crazy, yeah. and he just loses his yeah. mind, it's and so it is good. awesome. awesome. He shows range in that scene that he never showed when he was playing Dwight Schrute on The Office. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, it's a uh, different guy. Um, he, huh? Yeah, it's basically, like you said, Noah's story about a guy, how far he'll go to prove something that he believes in yeah, at the cost of his family. And it, it plays with that. And I feel like there's something there that everybody can kind of tap into. Um, obviously we're not trying to build shelters to save from some coming apocalypse, but, uh, um, 
I think Jordan's <laughs> some of, proud. Some is, of yeah. us are. Uh-huh. <laughs> but we can relate in some way of something that we have a passion for that we put all our energy towards and how we have to balance that with other things in our lives. I think we need to talk about the score. The score is mm-hmm. absolutely wonderful um, in this. It's one that I go back to and listen to while writing all the time. about that in my movie journal it says great movie exclamation point currently being ruined by credits song oh i don't remember the credit song it's terrible i don't remember it either sometimes be- in life you gotta take shelter uh i, I believe, believe it's- i can fly <laughs> jeff nichols brother writes songs to go over the credits of uh, all of his movies and i'm sorry brother to jeff but <laughs> jeff um, brother I-, I will say oh. this as one of my favorite endings of all time yeah i think it's Absolutely yeah. perfect. Well, I, so I wanted got to a say, couple of endings. Uh, I wanted to say... Oh, it only endings. has one. No, there's definitely one ending. <laughs> it's, oh, it, it one ends movie. and that's it. <laughs> yeah, it's not like the end of Clue where they're like, or this could have happened. <laughs> it's what, what I'll say about it, you know, as you get closer to the film, you know it's going one of two directions. Mm-hmm. And and it still works. Like, it doesn't it doesn't matter right. when you, yeah, yeah, when you yeah, get a resolve. Absolutely. So I agree with you. That's what yeah. works so well about the ending. It's it's There's nothing surprising, and yet it still is. And that's just yeah. great filmmaking. What's with the face in the cloud in the first shot of Take Shelter? Don't remember. Don't remember. Not the birds? No, there is a face in the cloud. Like Maybe the, you're the only the one that fa- saw it. Great. When I start building shelters, be worried about me. (laughs) Uh, What are you guys excited about? I'm excited about only picking non-controversial directors from here on out. Not going to happen. We're going to find the dirt. (laughs) Uh, That's not really what I'm... I'm I'm really excited about... Depeche Mode is about to release a new album called Spirit. It's their first album since 2013. Uh, I think that this is a band that somehow gets better and better over time. And uh, I'm really excited about this new record. Speaking of music, I'm excited about going to a concert in a couple of weeks by a California band Local Natives in, in Athens at the Georgia Theater. They're a, they're a good band to put on a great show. I've huh. filmed them before. Yeah. Are they nice guys? Yeah, I met them briefly. They were like... I'm excited about the fact that my pain as a Falcons fan will end one day because I will die one day. That's I guess that's a about. good way to look at it. Why don't you shut is up? Is it? So the Super Bowl is... In Atlanta talk about in 2019, right? Yeah, I don't yeah. So that's going to be the ultimate. That'll the be Falcons perfect. get into the Super Bowl in yeah. 2019 Losing in their, their home, home city <laughs> and just totally give it away in probably the last well, 25 seconds. Hopefully, just, just think, Lance, it can get worse. Hopefully, I won't be alive then. So, ooh, yeah, it'll be three soon. friends. Yeah. that would be too soon. That would be too soon. No, that'd be great timing. Actually. Three friends be, fight about film in 2018. That'd be 19. That'd be. Perfect. We would we would hang up this podcast if you don't. No, I'd keep going. I have something very exciting that I am excited about. We are planning on making a movie. That's and, true. And um, the name of this movie is Emmy Gray. E M M Y G R E Y. And we have a website up, emmygray.com. You guys can watch a little teaser trailer on there. And we're, we're part of the dot com bubble now. Yeah, and follow our progress as we make a film. Yeah, way more positive than mine. <laughs> Yeah, you got to stay alive for it, Lance. Pretty positive people. Uh, stay alive for some so. movies. All right, thanks for listening, you guys. Thanks, guys. Once again, thanks, y'all. we'll see you soon. Bye.
Hey, y'all. Come on back next week when we'll be talking about the bears of bad news, the kids of karate, the lights of Friday, the balls of money, and the sports of blood. Michael, this is Kit. Let us know how you're the stippers in at Fight About Film on Facebook and Twitter or email us at fightaboutfilm at gmail.com. Please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes. Four Friends Fight About Film is produced by Brothers Ray in Atlanta, Georgia, Michael. This episode was recorded and edited by Jordan Noel, Michael, Michael, Michael.